This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, February 17th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. For opponents of qualified immunity, that's the Supreme Court-invented doctrine that lets many public officials off the hook for violations of Americans' rights, the focus has long been on police and how police engage with the rest of us. But what about other public officials, like school administrators? Chris Kemet is with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. That group has won a round in federal court against administrators who strip-searched a student twice for no clear reason. We spoke last week. With respect to constitutional rights, what do we broadly expect that the public sector owes to the private sector? I mean... I think that what we expect is that the public sector adheres to the Constitution, that the Constitution means what it says, and that public sector employees are obligated by it, are bound by it, and when they violate the the rights of other people as set out in the Constitution, there has to be some sort of consequence for that. Okay, so in the the context of police, uh, police who violate Americans' rights are rarely ever charged with crimes. Um, uh, and in this case that you're dealing with, what do uh, teachers and school administrators and public schools in general, uh, you know, how does that differ from when we talk about in the context of police violating rights? You know, I think that when people think about the Fourth Amendment and they think about invasive searches and seizures or even qualified immunity, like the police are quite fairly the first the first kind of group of folks that um, that spring to mind because they are the most likely party to be involved. But school officials are bound by, you know, are bound by the Fourth Amendment, just like police officers, just like police officers are. And uh, qualified immunity can impair plaintiff's ability to collect damages from school officials when they violate their rights, just like the same thing happens with police officers. So really, they're even though they're not school officials, aren't who we think about as being in this position. Like they still have. Um, same ability to violate, you know, kids' rights as any police officer does. Tell me about this case that your group handled at the 11th Circuit. Sure. So we represent a 14-year-old eighth grader, or we represent a plaintiff who was 14 years old at the time of the incident. So 14-year-old TR was at school. She was in uh, an agricultural classroom, and the teacher smelled marijuana. So they emptied all the kids out of the classroom. They searched the backpacks of all the kids in the class. And in TR's backpack, the teachers found some marijuana seeds and stems that led them to think that she might be the kind of source of the uh, marijuana smoke that they smelled in class. So she was taken to the principal's office. And based on this kind of general suspicion that maybe she had smoked uh, marijuana in class, they thought she might still have a half-smoked joint on her. Uh, at this point, nobody had said they saw her um, smoke, you know, smoke a joint. They hadn't searched the classroom to see if the joint was in the classroom, which it was. Uh, instead, this principal and uh, guidance counselor decided that what they needed to do was strip search 14-year-old TR. So they had her remove all of her clothes, standing in front of an office window that was open into a corridor into the school cafeteria. So if there were students there and school was still in session, they could see right in. They had her lift up her breasts, bend over, uh, and inspected her for whether or not she had a joint on her. And then it gets even kind of wilder because 
they realize that there are no drugs on her. And so they resume kind of questioning her. Her mom and her sister show up. And then before they're allowed to leave the school, the school officials decide that they need to do the very same thing again. So again, even though they know now that she has no drugs on her, they have her, you know, stand back up, take her clothes off, uh, lift her breasts and bend over. Um, even though she's never left the room, the officials have been there with her the entire time. So they literally know that they are not going to find anything. And they just conduct this completely needless and unreasonable second strip search. So what did you ask the court to provide as relief or to, to do to make amends? Sure. So TR sued the school officials through her mom, basically seeking damages for a violation of her Fourth Amendment rights and for um, some various state law claims, including something called outrage, which is otherwise called the intentional infliction of emotional distress. And this was done by a law firm that we uh, partnered with on the appeal called Maxwell Tillman. So they brought this lawsuit seeking compensation for the violation of TR's rights. But a judge in the Northern District of Alabama tossed that lawsuit on summary judgment, which basically means he didn't even let it go to trial uh, and said, you know, even if you prove all of these facts that you laid out, that doesn't basically get around the hurdle of qualified immunity. Like qualified immunity demands more than what you've given me so far. There just hasn't been a case that looks exactly like your case. So you lose, you're out of luck. And at that point, uh, I work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and we got involved at that point with the appeal and took an appeal up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, which is the federal appellate court that covers Alabama and some other states. So what did the 11th Circuit say? The 11th Circuit said basically that the district court had dropped the ball. So the 11th Circuit said that, in fact, the school officials had violated TR's Fourth Amendment rights, that they'd done so in a variety of different ways. So, for instance, they said that they didn't have enough suspicion to make her do a strip search in the first place when they started it, um, that they went way too far in terms of the scope of the strip search. They shouldn't have done it in front of an open window, that the second search was obviously unconstitutional, um, that she could proceed with her state law claims, too. And because this is a qualified immunity case, they had to find that all of that constitutional law was clearly established at the time of the search, and they did that, too. The Supreme Court appears to have a pretty clear, not just a lack of interest, disinterest, anti-interest in taking cases like this one. Uh, do you suspect that this one would be any different? Usually they're police cases. This is about school administrators. Do you expect the Supreme Court would view this any differently? You know, I mean, we're certainly hoping that the Supreme Court doesn't take it since we prevailed in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So at this point, our primary interest is, uh, is you know, hoping and praying that the Supreme Court stays away from it. The Supreme Court, has, I mean, has has definitely exhibited an interest in really closely enforcing qualified immunity and taking cases, um, you know, that don't kind of create uh, or don't implicate serious legal problems. Uh, like most of the cases they grant just for the purpose of reversing qualified immunity cases. So I think that that's, you know, something that could always uh, happen in a qualified immunity case. I hope it doesn't in ours. I think that the 11th Circuit's decision stands like really solidly on the law. So I'm not sure that the that the Supreme Court would want to, you know, pick our case to reinforce the idea of qualified immunity. But I can't see the future. So I guess we'll wait and see. 
Has uh, the NAACP taken other cases that uh, that implicate qualified immunity? We have. We have. So the Legal Defense Fund, where I work, has we have a qualified immunity team that does qualified immunity litigation among public education and some other things. So in the past year, we've taken six different cases in the federal courts of appeals. So we've taken six cases on direct appeal that are either decided or at various different stages of litigation. We file amicus briefs. We've joined Cato, in fact, in um, some cross uh, ideological amicus briefs at the Supreme Court. Um, we do amicus briefs on our own. So we do uh, we do a bunch of qualified immunity litigation. It's kind of a point of emphasis for us. So what do you, what do you hope is the in the final analysis what occurs with this doctrine that Cato's Clark Neely likes to point out, wholly invented by the Supreme Court, flips some federal uh, civil rights legislation effectively on its head, giving people almost no recourse to uh, hold public officials accountable for violations of Americans' rights. What do, you, what do you hope ultimately is the disposition of this doctrine? Oh, that's easy. The Supreme Court should get rid of it entirely. If the Supreme Court doesn't get rid of it entirely, Congress should get rid of it entirely. If Congress and the Supreme Court fail to get rid of it entirely, every state in the country should use the powers that it has under its state constitution to make sure that people can bring the same sorts of constitutional challenges under the state constitution uh, and ensure that those state challenges aren't blocked by qualified immunity so that police officers and other government officials don't get away scot-free when they you know, run roughshod over people's constitutional rights. Chris Kemet is Deputy Director of Litigation at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 